You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. We discuss social justice, childhood trauma, current events, hip-hop, and so much more. Now, here's your host, Michael Arrington. Yo, y'all, what's good? It's your man, Mike Arrington, BU Podcast. We in the building for another episode. Um, today I got my man, uh, the legendary DJ Johnny Juice. Um, you probably don't know his name. He's not a household name like he should be, but he's had his hands on some of the greatest works of hip hop history. We'll get into that in a minute. But um, reason why I wanted to get Johnny on to really talk about you know mental health and why it's important one for men and two why it's important in the hip hop community as well as have him give you some history on hip hop man he is definitely a uh, hip hop historian he's been around some of the greatest artists of our time so it's really important that his he be heard one and two kind of give you his perspective of things versus my perspective I've worked with Johnny on a couple of my records. He's done some cuts for for me as a DJ. And he's really, really creative, really, really talented, really, really dope. Really, really cool brother, man. He always embraced me from day one. He was kind of by proxy my introduction to Chuck D. And uh, for those who know me, know that Chuck D was my, uh, a public enemy, was my childhood idol. You know what I'm saying? Like I wanted to be... Everything that he was when I was, you know, 13, 14 and 15. I've come to know Chuck as a person, as an artist. I've worked with him on a record. Had a chance to just kind of build with him on several occasions, man. You know, he's a, you know, a mentor of mine. And, it, you know, my, my childhood self chuckles every time I get a call from him or we exchange tweets or, or you know, Instagram posts or whatever the case may be. But... Why, like the relevancy to my introduction to Chuck D was through a friend of mine named Mary Maxine, who kind of made the the introduction official, right? And so, but what was crazy was when I met him at this function that she threw for her birthday many moons ago, he knew who I was, right? And so, I brought my Takes a Nation, the Million to Hold Us Back CD that I bought in '88 that I still had in my collection and had him sign it. Right. And so, but before I can ask him to sign the CD, he asked, he brought a CD of mine and asked me to sign it, which I thought was super duper dope. And then that kind of spawned a a relationship that we had over the course of, you know, almost 10 years now. But Chuck has been instrumental in in just kind of guiding me towards kind of some of the moves I'm making now, kind of behind the scenes, like she's giving me advice you know, but also put me in different situations with different artists. But one memory I have in particular, though, was when I was invited to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction party at the House of Blues here in Los Angeles. And um, I was in the room with every artist that I had idolized as a kid. Right. So the people that I met was, you know, I had a long conversation with Method Man. I had a long conversation with DMC from the great run DMC. I had a long conversation with the uh, the fellas from Houdini. Long conversation with LL Cool J. Um, I got to meet Eddie Murphy because he was there. 
There were so many people there at that tiny ass place in Hollywood, House of Blues, which it was like packed wall to wall, ear to ear of nothing but, you know, the industry's best. Right. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to be in that space and these icons of mine were putting me on the same level as them. So it's it's a strange feeling for me that, you know, my childhood idols have become my contemporaries. And I have to sometimes remind myself of that. I came a long way as an artist, but I've come even a further way as a man. And um, but I forget at times that um, I've accomplished a lot as a musician. Some of the things I've been able to do independently. And no, I'm probably not a household name. You know, but people like myself and, and, and DJ Johnny Juice are instrumental to some of some 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 very historic things um, in this music game, man. So but I wanted to share that story, man, and introduce you guys to people that I know and people that listen and tune in to my podcast of who Johnny Juice is, why he's important to one to me and why he's uh, been instrumental in some of hip hop's best records ever. But with that being said, we're going to get into it when we get right back. This is the BU Podcast. Your man, Mike Arrington. We'll be back in a sec. You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. Yes, yes, we're back. BU Podcast, your boy, Mike Arrington. Man, I'm here with my man, uh, the legendary DJ Johnny Juice, man, um, I call him legendary, man, because he had his hands in a whole lot of hip-hop history. A lot of people probably don't know uh, how many things he's touched. Um, and a vital part to my own career personally, man, he's been on, oh, man, probably four or five, maybe six of my records, man. And um, so I just always appreciated his love for the for the music, for love for hip-hop, man, and his respect for me. So, yeah, my man, Johnny Juice, man. So let the people know who you are and what you do, bro. Yo, what's up, man? My name is Johnny Juice, and I create them little plastic things you put around the, the ends of your sneaker laces, man. You know, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a musician, I'm a producer, a DJ, a B-boy, former graph writer, um, composer, uh, all-around good guy, and Bronx representer. No doubt. The BX is in the building, man. So, yeah, um... So I got familiar with you through uh, your work with Public Enemy, man. So uh, tell me, man, what it was like or what it is like to work with the likes of, you know, the legendary Chuck D and, and you know, all the things that come with Public Enemy. Well, here's the irony, because a lot of people that are, are associated with Public Enemy now weren't there at the beginning. So they have this... Um, this attitude like, yo, man, you should be grateful to Chuck for putting you on. I'm like, you understand when I got down with PE, they weren't anybody famous. They were just starting out right. like everyone else. So I didn't get put on. I helped create what they were later on. So right. it was a bunch of dudes just saying, yo, you know, get on my stuff. It might blow up. We all hear that a million times from everybody. No so doubt. As far as I was concerned, there's another group I'm doing something with that might not go anywhere, right? right? So, and at the time, I had a group. It was me, a cat named MC Chiloski, and a cat named KBMC. 
those dudes later will change their names to Charlie Brown and Buster Rhymes. Right. So I was already in a crew with my two boys and we tried out for Spectrum City and we're looking for DJs and MCs to manage because they did radio at the Delphi University. Right. And um, we knew them from there. And they also were a mobile DJ crew. And we had a mobile DJ crew. So while they had a name and that was all cool, Spectrum City, they weren't public enemy yet. Right. So when I got down with them, I, I went up to, the, you know, with Brown. Buster happened to be in Brooklyn visiting his pops. So he didn't come with us. So we went and tried out. But it wasn't. We thought we were going to battle as a crew, but we ended up battling individually. And I won the DJ portion. And they put me with a group called the Kings of Pressure. We got signed to Next Plateau. And then the process of all that, Chuck was like, yo, we working on an album. You want to do some scratching on it, blah, blah, blah. And Chuck would give me a ride home because it was on his way home. I didn't have a whip at the time. I was in high school. And uh, he played me the first song, and it was my Uzi Ways a Ton. And he was like, yo, you know, you think you do something to this? I'm like, oh, yeah. Sure. Grabbed the creative records. Next weekend, went and did the whole Yo Bummers the Show album. You know what I'm saying? So... That's how it started. And then Brown and Buster would continue coming up to the studio and eventually Chuck put them on, changed their names. Right. Because Buster Rhymes would have been, I don't know if he would have been as famous known as MC Chillo Ski right now. <laughs> right, right. I know uh, Chuck gave him that name, right? Or it was around that time that he was giving yeah. him the name. He gave him the name. He gave up. He, he changed KBMC to, to Charlie Brown. KBMC stood for Crush BMC. His name is Brian. So... You know, you know, Crush was real big at the time. Crush, right? Yeah, everybody was crushing back then. Right, right. So he was crushed. So, and you know, that's how that worked out. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, there was a whole little movement in Long Island, and me being a part of that beginning stage of Public Enemy, it was weird because I came from the Bronx and moved to Long Island, and as far as people in the Bronx were concerned, Long Island was the country. Right. No doubt. (laughs) No doubt. So, you know, that's like cats that live in L.A. when you, you know, you go to a suburb like, you know, Ontario, Mira Loma, and they're like, that ain't L.A., you know what I'm saying? And right. Long Island was like that, you know what I mean? And and I, and I even thought that. When I moved to Long Island, I'm like, where's the bodegas? Where's the cats on the corner? There's nobody right. in the corner because people in their backyards and their basements, you know? No, nah, no doubt. I never, had a, I never had a backyard or basement, so, you know, culture shock, but... I realized quickly there was some hip hop happening on Long Island, man. You know what I'm saying? And, and it changed the world, you know, in a lot of respects. No doubt, man. Um, now that you said that it changed the world, man, it gets me to my next question, man. So hip hop changed a lot of lives, man. It took kids out the hood, gave them the opportunity for an outlet, man, to either get some financial stability that they probably would have never had, give them opportunities they never would have had, or it gave them at least, at the very least, like a wealth of experience, man. Um, but in that, man, comes a lot of different issues, man. When you take somebody from, like you just said, it's a culture shock, right? It's, you know, you go from the Bronx to now you on tour in Japan or you in tour in Europe. You know what I'm saying? It's a culture shock, man, especially when you're young, you don't have that many experience to really, you know, to kind of bounce that off of, man. So what do you say to that era? Like, let's say, take me back to like, let's say 87 and what that era was like versus what it's like now well first of all obviously there was no internet right so your your exposure was limited to your actual real life experience traveling or stories from cats that you know that been outside the block i'll be honest with you i know people that never left their five square you know block radius you know what i'm saying like i never i never left it you know right 
I know cats that never been, you know, that live in the city that never been to the Empire State Building. I'm like, dude, that's a train ride. You know what I'm saying? But right. you know, or the World Trade Center before it collapsed. You know, I'm like, yo, that's right there. But they never went. They stood uptown. You know, or the, right. I know people in Long Island like Son of Berserk. Love them dudes, man. And I, I would try to bring them into Manhattan to do shows. And they were like, nah, you know, I don't really know that much about Manhattan. I'm like, yeah, it's 30 minutes away, man. Right, you know? right. So back in the day, we used to train hot. I used to go everywhere. And I was in the Bronx. I'd dip down to Manhattan, go to 110 and Lex, Battle Cats, because I was a B-boy first. Right. You know, currently I'm the vice president of first generation crew, the Bronx Boys. Um, two of our members created Rocksteady. In 79. So, you know, we, we precede even that. And I was a B-boy. That's what I did. And in order to make a name, just like graffiti writers, you had to have what's called fame. Right. So graffiti writers do it by getting up. You know, they throw a, they throw a, a piece up on a, a train and it travels throughout the city or they throw, you know, some throw ups, markers on buses, whatever it is. As a B-boy, the only way you get in the name is you got to travel outside your comfort zone. You got to battle. Right. So I did that. You know, I did that. And then when I moved to Long Island, I was definitely rocking trains because I was going to the Bronx every weekend. I hated Long Island at first. Right. So I'm like, this is whack. I got to go home. Learned about the Long Island Railroad. Then I learned about taking trains uptown. And I was all throughout the city. And I had I was fortunate to, to visit other states, you know, when I was a kid. Right. Went to Florida. Had some family in Cali. You know, matter of fact, I mentioned Mida Loma in Ontario because my, my aunt and her family lived out there. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, she passed away last year from COVID, but her family, all of them have master's degrees, <laughs> all of her kids, and they're all teachers in, in, in the greater L.A. area. Okay, so, yeah, great, great people. But I had that exposure. I was able to go to California, went to Vegas a few times, went to Toronto. Now, you don't have to go anywhere. You can go online and you can, boom, you can do a virtual tour of any country you want. Not only that, you could actually establish communication with somebody that lives there. And um, you're able to talk to an actual person that lives in Brussels or that right. lives in Marseille, France, or, or you know, someplace that you've never been. And you can literally ask them Yo, what it's like being there and they'll send you stuff. So your, your exposure, you know, to, to different cultures and and music and, and things of that nature is exponentially, you know, increased due to our technology. Right. Yeah. That's how I, I was able to prosper, man, at, like right around my space. I set up my first tour in Europe just based off people in my own MySpace hitting me up. I didn't even know my music was being played in, in Europe at the time, bro. So when they would hit me up, like, yeah, when you coming out here, I was like, man, set it, set it up. I'll be out there as soon as I can get out there, right? And so um, I was able to, you know, do my first tour out there. Man, I was with De La Soul. I was with The, the Roots. I was really kind of, you know, kind of in the forefront of what people are doing now going overseas and kind of making that extra money, getting that extra exposure out there. And it was uh, all because of, of a, a, a distribution company called Groove Attack. I don't know if you remember Groove Attack. Yeah, I remember. They, they were huge. Man, I had no idea. I sold more records in, in Europe than I did in, in the States. So who knew? But yeah, you, you're right. The accessibility, man, of, of the internet really gives these kids the opportunity, man, to, to really kind of kind of live out their dreams without having to really go anywhere. So let me ask you this, man. Let's talk about um, since you a DJ, a b boy. Uh, why is DJing one of the most important uh, parts of hip hop culture? Well, the music is the foundation. Period. Um, without that, there's there's nothing else. Um, but I, I do have a, a few issues with the narrative that the DJ was the creator of hip hop. 
because and I had this discussion with cats like Cool Herc and things like that, and and we talked, and of course they're like, "Well, the DJ, you know, we started this," and I'm like, "Who are you DJing for?" Right. Because there were DJs before you. What makes hip hop different? Well, I played the breaks. Why did you play breaks? So the dancers could stop. So who? So the dancers could rock to it. The dancers predate the DJ. Right. The hip hop DJ. Right. Not the DJ, but hip hop DJ. So I had cats saying, well, if the hip hop DJs didn't extend the break, these dancers wouldn't be dancing to it. I said, negative. They were already dancing to the breaks. They just waited till the break happened. Right, right. And they, and they called it the get down, or they called it the break, you know, whatever. You know, so they got to the get down part, then they started getting down, right? They started right. rocking. First, it started with rocking, you know, like Brooklyn rocking and, and Bronx rocking. And then it went down from top rocking to floor rocking. Um, things like that occurred, right? Now, had there been no DJ, they'd still be doing it. The DJ just saw that opportunity to cater to those dudes. Right. And extend the break. Right. So Herc was, I guess, the first cat that specifically wanted to cater to cats that didn't dance vertically. Right. So the thing <laughs> is, right. that means that the B-Boys were there first. Right. Now, he named them B-Boys for Bronx Boys or Break Boys, but they still existed. I mean, dinosaurs existed millions of years ago before we named them dinosaurs. That right. doesn't mean that they didn't exist until I named them. Right. So, no doubt. You know, so I think that it's hand to hand. It's the DJ and the, the 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 symbiotic relationship between the DJ and and the, and the dancer. Right. Where's That's the dancer? The reason, reason why I asked you that question, man, because I know you real rich in hip-hop history. I mean, that's why I said this. Why is it one of the most important? And I didn't say it was who started right. it, because I knew I, I, I'd, I'd had conversations with, with Herc in regards to that, and he told me that you guys had a little debate about that, and I kind of had to kind of lean more towards you, because you, it makes real, it makes a whole lot of sense. Well, keep in mind, dancing, out of the four ele original elements, da dancing is the only one that doesn't require any peripheral equipment. Facts. <laughs> so facts. you need to you need when you write rhymes, you got to write them down. Eventually, you can forget them unless you're like a prodigy or you have like, right. you know, photographic memory. If you're a DJ, you need records and your hands and a mixer. If you're a writer, you need a can of paint or or a pencil and a book. A dancer is the purest form of the expression of hip hop because it goes directly from your brain to your body. No doubt. I'm glad you cleared that up for me, man. So, um. So yeah, man, in the the kind of emergence of today coming through, I can't even say we're at the end of this pandemic. Kind of getting, I see the light at the end of the tunnel now, finally though. But there's been an emergence of um, uh, the importance of mental health, right? I know you created a Facebook um, a group uh, to kind of you know have cats kind of have a place to vent. What's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, men in general have always been taught to man up you know, don't be a little girl or be or whatever, you know what I'm right. saying? Because we're, we're taught, we're taught to, you know, suffer in silence, so to speak, because that's what men do. But to be honest with you, that's caused a, a huge toxic, you know, swirl of, of, of conditioning that men have had, especially in this country, you know, right. Americans, you know, are not very, you know, it's, it's, it's ironic where women, women want sensitive men, right? But at the right. same time, when they see a dude act a little too soft, it's like, nah, son. Right. You know, <laughs> right. You know so, you know, you know, man up, you know, so uh, 
Personally, I, I mean, I know I've seen my share of stuff. A lot of people have. My father committed suicide when I was 13 uh, in my house. So uh, we didn't have, at least in those days, uh, the opportunity to be counseled by right. by you know mental health professionals because that wasn't the standard procedure then. Right, so no now it is, you know, now they'll, they'll run you through a gauntlet of, of mental health professionals to make sure you're okay, but it didn't occur then. It ends right. up my little sister was six and she's the one that found him and wow. didn't realize that he was, you know, he was dead. So she was talking to him for like, like 15 minutes until my mom could get there and everybody got there. But she didn't know. And, and, and luckily, and she went through a lot of mental health issues. And I mean, now she got a degree. She's, you know, she's doing incredibly well, you know, and she's in her forties and she's doing a thing, but you know, there's no telling what that, you know, that can do to you. And, and, and she's a girl, but I mean, I'm not saying that's different from men, but since men are taught to not really express, you know, vulnerability, it becomes, it be, you know, the, it compounds the issue. Right. So we can't even talk to our own brothers about, you know, how they're doing until we find out they're gone or we find out that, you know, they've been in, they're in a situation where they're, they're in a mental institution or things of that nature. Right. And I've known some hip hop cats that, sure. we, that that I know, like my boys, that they, they gone through this. And, and I think that having an outlet or having someone to talk to where you don't feel like you're kind of attaching yourself to the stigma of this male conditioning that we've grown up to believe right. can free you from, you know, from a lot of that pain and allow you to heal faster. Yeah. For me, man, the reason why I even got into therapy was because I wanted to know, I was always curious of, of why I, I was always responding to things in a certain way, right? Like why did, you know, I've seen some traumatic things in my life too. And what I was always concerned about was like, I, ha I have an affinity for like serial killers. Right. So I always want to know like, why, like what made that dude snap to say, I'm done. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to kind of try to get away with it for as long as I can. And so, but that sparked my interest in psychology and how the mind works and why certain people have that trait and others don't. And so, but in that, I was struggling with my own issues. You know what I'm saying? I, su I suffer from depression myself. And so uh, when I started working with, with kids, I started to kind of see through them some of the things that I was conditioned with, right? And yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm of a certain age. I'm in my 40s, almost 50. And, um, you know, we were taught to kind of tuck that stuff away. And, you know, you got to man up and, you know, it's, you, you, can't, you can't ask for help, right? And so, but a lot of that conditioning comes from slavery, right? It was because you had to be a certain way or you get killed. You know what I'm saying? So you couldn't, you could, you had to repress those feelings, man. And so um, I think it's vital, man, like your page is vital for having somebody have an outlet for people to kind of reach out when they feel in some kind of way, man. I've lost several people to suicide and like, I wish I would have saw the sign sooner. You know what I'm saying? And had that conversation with them. Right. And so, um, cause you never know, like it's, it's really, people really don't fake being depressed. People really fake being okay. Right. You know what I'm saying? So I think that's, it's important, man, to just have an outlet, man, because you never know. There's been times, man, where even my own students have caught me in a bad one and, and just kind of snapped me out of it and just me telling them how I felt that day, not knowing that 
I was helping them as much as they was helping me. You know what I'm saying? So I think it's important, man, for us men in particular to to get rid of that stigma of, of, of mental health being a bad thing. And so with that said, though, in our business, the music business, man, there's a lot of artists that suffer. You know, they suffer in silence because of this code of having to be tough and having to be street and all that type of stuff, man. And they self-medicate a lot. Right. I know being young and being on tour and watching cats like Coolio on tour and seeing, you know, the level of destructiveness that that goes on on a tour. Um, what does that come from for us, man? Is it just a, people not having a whole lot of nothing and then finally getting something and just doing it excessively? Or is that you feel like it's a mental health stigma attached to that? Well, keep in mind, escapism isn't relegated to just cats from the hood or, or these cats that didn't have, you know, the have nots. Indeed. You know, rich people do it too. You know, sure. they may they may use different methods, you know. Right. Uh, some of them they may use a better grade of drugs than we better do. Better grade of drug or a different type of drug. <laughs> right. Or not even drugs at all. Some of them just blow their money because they have millions of dollars. They'll blow their money on things that are insignificant because they feel that that somehow will, you know, negate some of their pain or whatever. You know, I'll just buy myself a new boat. You right. know, they got three boats sitting there, five cars. Why did you buy, why, like, is there a purpose for having multiple? You only can drive one car at a time. Now, right. I understand if you have an SUV for days, you need an SUV and a regular car. But when you get like seven, eight, nine cars, if you're not a collector, why do you? Why is that something that you do? Right. There's no, there's, there's nothing that's actually productive about that. So then you start got to start asking, why do people do that? And that happens with everybody. You know, there's people that binge eat. When they get depressed, there's people that, you know, people that buy shoes because they're like, right. you know, there's something to be like, you know what? It's like a distraction. So escapism isn't really, it's just relegated to us. For sure. Unfortunately, since we in the hood, escapism uh, usually funnels through whatever we can afford. For sure. Now, now crack costs less than cocaine. <laughs> so, right. people, you know, cats in the hood did crack, you know, um, Heroin was big at one time, but so was dust, you know, back in the 70s. Right. And I'm fortunately, I never really did any of that. That was not my thing. You know, I was a martial artist since I was three. So my coping mechanism was going to class. Now, when I was young, there were no kids, you know, back in the 70s. They didn't teach kids. Like now you go to karate schools, a million kids, you know, right. look, you see you're an adult. Right. Back when I it, there was no there was no kids. I had to be that to talk, you know, the instructor and the teaching me because my uncle, you know, who was my idol. He was a, a Vietnam veteran. He was an airborne ranger and he's a retired physician's assistant um, and, and a substance abuse expert. Uh, and um, this dude was like, yo, trust me, you got to let him come into the class. And, and I end up, you know, that ended up being my thing more so than anything else, actually, even music. And um, I'm a multinational, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a multi-time, uh, multi-year national champion. Uh, I know multiple arts, I got multiple black belts. That's That was my thing, that was my coping mechanism. Yeah, I know for me, man, it was music. It was you know, going to the record store with my little allowance, buying records, man, going to different swap meets, man, getting them penny records and 10 cent records, you know what I'm saying, looking for anything obscure. I was a real big fan of weird album covers. So if they had a weird album cover, I knew it was something dope on that record. Of course, yeah, that's when <laughs> album covers actually reflected the material inside. But For sure. Uh, 
I was a comic book fan. I collected comic books when I was little. You know, my pops did that. He was like, yo, you know, you speak Spanish, you speak English. I want you to, I don't want them to put you in a position where you're in like in a bilingual class and it kind of, which kind of holds you back because they don't advance as fast. He's like, you're going to learn, you know, you're going to learn how to speak. You're going to learn how to, you know, articulate. And, and he bought me these comic books and I was in single digits. And, right. and it worked. I ended up being a talented and gifted classes. And, and I was an advanced student and all that. And that was an escapism. And of course, I could look at the comic books and copy them and draw them in my graffiti pieces, which transitioned over to the hip hop thing. Right. A lot of the, the panels in the comic books look like B-boy freezes. Right. So you'd see like Captain America leaning back to like to throw a punch or something like that, or Spider-Man like dipping over to the cut. And then it's like, oh, that looks like a freeze. You know what I'm saying? Right, and, right. And, and all of that, you know, all of that coalesced into like this this thing that we, you know, was hip hop, martial arts, you know, going to the Kent Theater on 167 and watching Sonny Chiba movies. Right. Going down to 40 Deuce and seeing that, you know, we used to do that all the time. And then, of course, when you leave the, the, the movie, you're always trying to kick your friend. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But it was an escapism. It was like it was a way to forget that, that when you got home, you might not have hot water or heat. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. The hip hop definitely was um, a conduit to a lot of escape for, for a lot of kids, man, especially coming from, you know, um, the Bronx in the 70s and, you know, New York in the 70s. Um, LA in the 80s <laughs> bred a lot of people too, you know what I'm saying? So um, yeah, no doubt. so to take me back, man, to the to the golden era of hip hop, what was considered the well, some people consider the golden era. We talking 87 and 93, right? So you talking the biggest acts at the time, you know, public enemy, NWA, Big Daddy Kane, P- BDP. Um, I would even throw, you know, the likes of Brand Newbie in through there. And then the tail end, you had Onyx and, and uh, the whole duck down movement with Black Moon. Um, take me back for you for that era, man, because you're a little older than I am. So um, you was you kind of, you know, being on the scene and being in the, in the music. I didn't start getting into the music business till 93. So you got a little bit of familiarity with that era than I do from, a, from an industry standpoint. Oh, yeah. I mean, my first record in 86. Right. So. But I was b-boying and doing all that stuff before that. But I'll take you through uh, 87, 87, since you mentioned 87. All right. So walk down the block, you see a fly. Oh, the Milky Way, right? There's a lot of clubs. The clubs used to have a night, which was like a hip-hop night. And they would call it whatever they called it, which wasn't the name of the club. Like Irving Plaza, which is on Irving Plaza in Manhattan, was known as the Milky Way. It was known as the World. It was known as a bunch of different depending on which promoter rocked it, right? Right. So you see a fly for the Milky Way. It's like, oh, but the Milky Way also used to be at this spot on Suffolk Street. You know, they move, right? Right. So <laughs> like, I ain't, ain't that much money. I go here, you know, or first class in the Bronx. That was like a spot on near 138th and Grand Concourse. But yeah, back, let me start at 138th Grand Concourse, 86. I walk in there, not even technically old enough to be in there because it just changed the legal drinking age to 21. Just missed out on 18. I was pissed. <laughs> so I walked in there, but I, I was allowed in because I was a B-boy. And they had a big wall separating these two huge rooms. I ended up battling these cats who would later go on to be known as UTFO because they were dancers first, right? And then they had two graffiti writers battling each other on the wall in the club. They're doing pieces, Bio and Brim. Uh, Bio being from the Tats crew, the crew that 
Fat Joe's down with, right? right. They write graffiti's on the wall. Africa, Islam is spinning, right? Wow. So yeah, so and this was regular, right? You know, we rock till about maybe four in the morning, then walk up the block to 138th and grab yourself a hot pastrami and cheese sandwich and a yuhu for going back to the crib because that was the only bodega I opened in 24 hours, right. right? So that was the thing, right? That's the kind of thing. Or we go to Skate Key, which was a skating roller skating rink, but then at, at the end of the night, they let you take the skates off and you could dance. So we battle cats there. Moved to Long Island, a lot of roller skating rinks, Levittown Roller Rink, right? Um, there was a uh, Subway, which was in Hempstead, right? Hempstead is where Public Enemy had their studios. Uh, these things all existed. There was a lot of outlets, right? Because, you know, they were trying to slowly build up hip hop. Matter of fact, in Long Island, cats weren't even really playing hip hop in clubs. And to Charlie Brown's older brother, who was my introduction to Brown, his brother Hig, who was one of my mentors, he started little by little playing more and more and more hip hop at these clubs. And he's bought, he bought the hip-hop really to Long Island in that respect because a lot of those were mob-run clubs. They wasn't trying to have black people in the clubs. Right, no doubt. And he was black and he was little, he played a hip-hop record that was commercial enough, like maybe a Run DMC record. And then he pushed it and he pushed it. And before you know it, there was an hour worth of hip-hop. And before you know it, there was half the night was hip-hop. And, right. and he was like really responsible for that, like for real. So those little things... You can see you can, now in hindsight, you can see how incremental the growth was. But I would go to mad different spots. You know, we go to go to um, a spot you see like a guest DJ spot by Cut Creator or something like that. And then you hear a cat like Duke of Denmark, who you probably don't even know. But this dude used to kill the set in Manhattan like that. that you know, so there was always after hours spots, you know, people that you didn't realize work with other people like Kane was. Roxanne Shantae's DJ. Right, right. So I was the I was the DJ, I was the 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 house DJ for the world at Urban Plaza. And Kid and Play and Shantae came to perform. Shantae opened up for Kid and Play. And Kane didn't have his records because I guess he was riding a train and somebody took him. You know, he was sleeping <laughs> or something. Like, you know, he just I mean, it wasn't like somebody robbed him like while he was awake like yeah i guess he crashed and somebody just yacked his bag right so he gets to the spot like yo i you know you got any you, and you got any shantae records i'm like of course i got shantae records he's like i'm gonna need them i'm like all right he got on and he spun for shantae and he killed it and then he's like yo i got a single if i come back next week would you play it i'm like yeah all right he brings me raw so right. i'm like <laughs> I put it in my headphones i'm like you know i don't know i got here first it might be whack right yeah, right you know what I'm saying? I throw it right. on. I'm like, I went crazy. I'm like, yo. And back in those days, you could play a record that was unknown. And people, if they liked it, they would dance to it. Now they got to hear it a thousand times on the radio before they accept it. Facts. Yeah, man, I asked you that, man, because I came in the second wave. I came through the um, what would be the underground golden era, right? So right. I came around 98, 99. You know, well, I really started rhyming in 93, but the wake up show hit and I was on the wake up show in 94. And then but the the, the my class of, of MCs were dilated peoples and Jurassic five and uh, that whole raucous movement. Right. So Talib and most deaf. And um, I came from that era and it was the second wave. So the same experience you had in 87. I would have in 94, like you go to Club Unity, my man Bigger B, rest in peace, yep. and you get cats like Mark Love DJing or J-Rock or Redmatic or Kilu 
and you get all yep. these dudes or you go to the fat beats and you get to see Celos and all these different dudes that, you know, end up being these, you know, these hip hop giants, but you didn't know it then. Right. And so I was taking that to the wake up show to the beat, which was a major radio station in LA at the time. No, I, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I'm taking that tapes, bro. And so, and they playing that's, and this is when Sway is, he ain't Sway, he, not the Sway now, but the Sway then. Yeah, it was just taking sway, you know what I'm saying? Before they had DJ Revolution spinning, they had, you know, right. a, a couple different cats. But um, so what what I, I feel bad for, for the younger generation now is they don't have those outlets that we had, right? Like we had, like you had the outlets you had, and I had the outlets I had. Like college radio was huge. We should go on college radio tours across the country. You know what I'm saying? And so now it's just try to get it on Spotify, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. And you're good to go. But, you know, you this was an opportunity for us to kind of really meet, you know what I'm saying, like, and share stories, right? I remember going on my first tour with the Licks and the Beat Nuts, and I'm sitting in the room with Psycho Less and Juju and J-Row and, and E. Swift and Tash, and we I, these are my childhood idols that I'm getting to swap war stories with, you know what I'm saying? And so, like, that was a vital piece for me for, as far as hip-hop is concerned, man, and I know, like, you probably don't call yourself a historian, man, but you was there at the epicenter of it all, man. So that's why I appreciate you coming through, man. Let me ask you this, man, really quick. What advice would you give your 17-year-old self, man? My 17-year-old self? Hmm, that's a good question. When I was 17, um, what was I doing when I was 17? Oh, yeah. I already made three albums. And um, and they did well. One of them was Yo Bum Rush the Show. I worked with the Beastie Boys. I did the Kings of Pressure stuff. True Mathematics. Um, you did True Mathematics. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know what? It's funny, man. I forgot a lot of the stuff I did. <laughs> but because um, right. you just did it. You know, things came through. You did it. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I ended up going to the military after being with PE for a while. And, okay. and, I was, and I was stationed on the West Coast. I was in Vallejo for a while. I was in San Diego. Okay. Um, so I was a Cali dude for a minute. Matter of fact, my two oldest daughters were born in San Diego. No word. Okay. Right. I didn't know that. So, I thought you went to. I thought you went to the service before PE. Nah, I went after the first two albums. There was some, you know, paperwork and logistical issues that I had with them. So Which I left. I'm quite like, typical in the music business, though. Right. <laughs> and um, and I left. I'm like, you know what, peace. I left and I went and got my degree, my computer science, electrical engineering degree, came back, you know, and everybody said the same thing. You leave it, you're going to mess up. And I came back and I just picked up where I left off. I mean, it's what it is, you know. Right. I actually picked up a lot of skills while I was gone um, and a little bit of trauma. <laughs> right, for sure. But, um, <laughs> but um, the thing, I don't know, you know, um, maybe maybe be more patient. Right. You know, um, we have a habit in the hood when we see something and we think that's it, we won't go to grab it like right away. Right. Because because we like, yo, we got to get that. I got to get mine. And that's opportunity. I got to grab it. But not all opportunities are there for you to grab. You know, sometimes you got to let those slide away. Right. No yeah. doubt. I would I would definitely tell myself the same, man. I know at 17, I was a senior in high school. That was 1993, 92, 93. And um, I was like you know, getting ready to cut, go to college. And, you know, I wasn't even rhyming yet. 
You know what I'm saying? So that wasn't even in the cards for me at the time. I mean, I was I was DJing. I DJ first. I started DJing in, in, in junior high school. Right. So it's a funny story how I started DJing and my neighbor, uh, Greg Ford, he was real good friends with um, with uh, General Jeff. You know what oh, I'm saying? Oh, <laughs> Yeah. Rest in peace. So, um, yeah, no so that's, that's how I learned how to how to um, how to DJ it was through him. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, he was over there on the weekends. I'd be there watching them dudes, man, asking my dad to go buy me a realistic mixer like he had and all that, man. So, um, but I would tell myself the same, man. Be be patient. You know what I'm saying? And a lot of opportunities that I thought, you know, I was going to be something in the music business, man, never really panned out. But I'm not mad that they didn't. You know what I'm saying? Because I, I don't think I'd be where I'm at today and had a life that I have now that had it not been for some of those setbacks or what I thought was setbacks back then. Exactly. And the thing is, you don't have at that age, you don't really have the context, right? The perspective that you would need to identify what exactly might be best for you at the time, because you're thirsty, you know, it's like, oh, man, what? That's why people sign these record deals as young men, young women, and they get jerked because they're like, yo, you know, I might never get a chance to sign a record deal ever. I got to sign this one. And that record deal is full of, you know, whatever. I mean, my record deal was fine. I took it to a lawyer and all that. I didn't get jerked because of my 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 contract was whack. I got jerked because the dudes that that made the contract with me violated the contract. So, right. you know, yeah, you that was that was the thing that Russell Simmons told me, man. When I met him trying to get signed at Def Jam back in 04, he was like, "I don't want to sign you, bro. You know too much. This is the record business, not the artist business, right?" And yeah. so. I remember him saying that and walking away feeling mad because I thought he was one of my heroes, right? That was the realest advice I could have ever gotten in music business, right? And I was like, yeah, you know what? Let me figure this shit out. He was like, you don't need me, bro. Like, you could be me. Like, you already got what it takes. You just got to put your shit out there. You know what I'm saying? So that really gave me the, you know, the stones to really go out there and do it on my own. And I've been I've been independent ever since then. You know what I'm saying? So... Um, yeah, you've been doing a great job, man. I, I I really admire, you know, the track that uh, that you've taken, you know, and the path you've walked. And, you know, I, I think people define success differently. Right. So one of the things I probably even ask myself is, you know, think very carefully about this. What do you perceive as success? Because when we're young, we tend to define success by what our peers think it is, right? Right. You know Oh, where's your car? Where's that fly crib? Or whatever it is, you know, and then you start getting, you know, wrapped up in that whole, you know, peer pressure mentality where you feel like you need to show your success. This is why cats like Bill Gates, who owns half the planet, walks around in a pair of khaki pants and a pair right, of like skinkers. Right. And then, you know, and you got some dude that barely made a little money and he's rocking $500 sneakers and a $70 belt. It's like... Right. Why do we feel the need to show the next person how you know, look look how successful I am? Look what I have. Right. You know, that, that that quiet confidence you have from you know from from really having a lot of self-love is what's missing from the hood. So what happens is we feel the need to impress people around us because we we get a false sense of love. Because the word love is also distorted, right? So right. you know, my hood shows me love. What does that mean? Right. Like real love, but no. they're showing you respect because they think you got something they want. Yeah, so that. <laughs> that's it, right there. Right oh, when you're a kid, you don't know that. Right, love is a verb, man. I tell I tell my students that all the time, man. Love is a verb, man, and not everybody knows how to do it. 
right? Like we, who, who taught you how to love, right? You just, you emulate what you think love is based on the perception of what you think love is, right? And so until somebody actually shows you what that looks like, feels like, you really don't know, you know what I'm saying? And so you, you write a lot of cats walk around. Like I remember when I first started in business, man, I had a whole bunch of friends, man. Now my circle is tight. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And everybody like, cause it, it got to the point to where like, man, you wasn't in the gym with me when I was shooting them jumpers, man. So you can't, I'm not giving you tickets to the game. You know what I'm saying? Just cause now we winning. Right. So it's a, uh, it's one of them things, man. So let me ask you this lastly, bro. Um, if you could work with any artist, dead or alive, who would it be? That's another good question. Because I've worked with a lot of very big artists. Right. So I'm, and I'm talking about not hip-hop. I'm talking about outside of hip-hop. Yeah, I know I know your discography, man. So, so I, I get it. This is why I wanted to ask you this question. I usually ask five people dead or alive who you want to have dinner with. But who's top five dead or alive artists you would want to work with? Sammy Davis Jr. Dope. Um, I would have loved to put together a soundtrack to a Richard Pryor um, project. I don't know what it would have been, right? But it, but it would have been it would have been bananas because he was brilliant. Plus, he was half Puerto Rican, right? Uh, uh, let's see, Hector Lavoe from the Fania All Stars, of course. Um, probably Aretha Franklin in her in her uh, in her heyday. Right. I was fortunate enough to meet her. I also met Etta James. Um, and I got to rock on stage with her for a minute. But I'm trying to think of somebody like real powerful. Man, I, I mean, I already did the Prince thing and the Stevie Wonder thing, and you know, and the Michael Jackson. Uh, didn't really I mean I would never turn down working with him but he wasn't right. like someone I really had to work with uh, probably Earth Wind and Fire as a band when in their heyday right they were dope they were dope if, if it was me I would want to my favorite artist of all time is Curtis Mayfield so I would love to have been in the studio with him learning from him uh, Isaac Hayes would be a close second uh, I would have loved to work with Barry White um, that's a that's a good one. That, that, see, I should have said Barry White. <laughs> yeah, Barry was, White would be one. I would have loved to work with Jimi Hendrix. Just to just to, to catch that whatever he was on in that short time span, man, I wanted to know. You know what I'm saying? And I would probably probably Earth, Wind, and Fire probably be there too, man. Like if not them, I would have loved to have been able to been a, 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 in the sessions of some of them Frankie Beverly and Mage records too. Here's the wild thing. I said I worked, you know, with some cats. I was in Chicago and I worked on this documentary called Godfathers and Sons with Chuck. No. We went to went to Chicago. We worked with the cats from Chess Records, the guys that did Muddy Water stuff. Yeah. What have you. So we did Manage Boy over, right? You know, dan 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 dan. That's right. right. So we did with the, the players, right? These are session musicians. Marshall Chess is overseeing the session. His father and his uncle used to run Chess Records. Marshall used to manage the Rolling Stones. You know, he produced Electric Mud and, and, and the, the Hollow Wolf album. So I'm in there with these dudes. Guitar player number one, Philip Church. He's the session guitar player. He played for Curtis Mayfield and Donnie yes, Hathaway. He sure did. So I already covered that bass, right? So right. guitar player number two, Pete Cozy. 
you know, rest in peace. Pete Cozy played with Miles Davis. He played with um, with uh, Herbie Hancock, and he also played. I mean, this is beside all the chess records, blues legends. Right. He also was one of the pharaohs that went on to become Earth and the Fire. Bass player Louis Satterfield. Louis Satterfield uh, taught Verdine White how to play the bass. Yes. Um, Louis Satterfield also played trombone in the Phoenix Horns for Earth and the Fire. Damn. All right. Yeah, exactly. Next, drummer. Drummer, Morris Jennings. Morris Jennings was the drummer for the Ramsey Lewis Trio. Damn. Morris Jennings also played the drums on Sil Johnson's Different Strokes, the sample that um, that Coogee Rap used for Talks Like Sex. That, right. uh, that, that, was, that, was my, that was Morris playing the drums on that. Right. So I already named a band where almost every dude in there is connected somehow to the dudes that you want to do. Oh, forgot Gene Barge, saxophone player. The only two people alive right now are Gene Barge, who's 94, and um and Phil Upchurch, the guitar player. Um oh by the way, Phil Upchurch also played with George Benson. He did he played on blues and stuff. Yeah. So um and he played on Thriller. Uh so uh Gene Barge was a saxophone player and he was the music director for Etta James, Minnie Ripperton, and he also produced Here Come the Judge by Pigmeat Markham. Which oh, a lot of people sure did. Right. So these are the cats that I was messing with. So when you get to know music, I'm not talking about I like music. When you get to know it and you know who does what and you say, wow, I know that style, that guitar style is this guy, this guy. Right. You get to know who the fathers of these people, you know, that, that you always respected was right. like Jimi Hendrix Catfish Blues is nothing but two trains by, by Muddy Waters. For sure. So if you know that, then it's like, OK, well, who played on two trains? And that's where he got his vibe from. Right. Right. And this is why liner notes are important, which are gone because you looking at MP3s that you download and they don't have any. Right. I mean, that's why I like, to, to, you know, on a smaller level, um, why everything that you've done for me always put featuring, you know what I'm saying? Cause you were an integral part of that record being created. You know what I'm saying? Like your scratches and what you add to it is part of the composition. You know what I'm saying? So I put that on there. Cause when you do, you do download the MP3, you'll say, it'll say featured DJ Johnny juice on it. You know what I'm saying? And not just somebody. Cause I know people ain't going to look for the liner notes. Like we used to, I, I still look at liner notes. Now you want to know where they got that studio sound from who the engineer was, you know what I'm saying? Like, I want to know. So like all the names you name, I know, you know what I'm saying? Cause I've looked at liner notes over the years, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, damn, okay. He played this or not. You know what I'm saying? There's a connection to it. Uh, I think that's the beautiful thing about, people who do hip hop correctly too, man, it's really like a mosaic of music that you can put together, you know what I'm saying? And, um, and kind of really make it into something, man. And, and, you know, cats like yourself who've been in the game for as long as you have and been as consistent, man, I appreciate it, man. So um, I appreciate your time, brother. I can really talk to you all day, man. You tap into my music nerd, man. So, uh, but I appreciate everything you've done for me, man, everything you're doing, Anything you need from me, me, man, I'm one call away, man. Just let me know and um, keep doing what you do, bro. And I'll get back with you. Likewise, man. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, you got my number. <laughs> for sure, man. I'll get with you. All right, bro. You are listening to The BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. Yes, yes, y'all. We are back. BU Podcast. What I mean, I know I learned something today. Um, 
and you probably learned that I'm a music nerd, <laughs> that I truly am a a, a fan of, of of music itself, hip hop in particular. But uh, I know more about music than I know about a lot of things. But it's always good to to kind of build with somebody who's been in the industry forever, who's been around some of the greats. I've had the fortunate pleasure of being in in studio sessions or on the road with some some incredible artists and um and just kind of be able to swap stories which is always kind of fascinating to me because like I don't see myself as somebody that's on the level of some of these other artists, right? But I have similar experiences, man. I've been able to travel from country to country. You know, I think I've done a show on every major continent anyway you know what i'm saying um definitely done europe i've definitely done i've done some amazing countries man i've done you know been able to perform in in cuba i've been able to perform in in uh, africa i've been able to speak at different functions and meet so many different people and it's it's always fascinating to me man that people put me in those categories man because um i truly don't see myself as that man i just was somebody that wanted to do music one day and thought I was good enough and, and an asshole enough to, to do it and get it done. And um, it it spawned over the course of, you know, the last 20 some odd years, my first album being 22 years old this year. But I've been on some major soundtracks and major movies and TV shows and had a couple of Super Bowl commercials and I've been behind the scenes on a lot of stuff. And so I, you know, I kind of got to give myself flowers too, in 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 retrospect. But what I found fascinating, you know, and listening to Johnny about um, his perspective on you know mental health, I think is very very vital, very very true. That you know we as a people, period. Not only to, to designate it to just inner city kids or ghetto kids or whatever, but um, people have this perspective of mental health being something that, you know, sensitive people do or like some level of ineptitude to have to go seek out therapy. And I beg to differ, of course, and I'm not being biased because I'm a therapist, but in part of some of the healing that I had was was through a therapist, man. And I think it's important if if not a therapist, you have somebody that you're able to vent to. But more importantly, though, somebody that's classically or or or, or trained into giving you skills that help you cope or being able to give certain advices or certain certain advice or certain instances where they can kind of speak to how to get into the root of some of the problems and you helping you find find it within yourself to kind of help fix yourself right like you know therapists aren't magicians but they do help in you kind of figuring out what's wrong with you and then helping you find the tools within yourself to fix yourself. Right. And so like I tell my clients, man, I can't fix you, but hopefully I can give you the wrench or the screwdriver or the hammer to fix yourself. But all I can do is kind of lay it out there for you and kind of let you see it from a different perspective and then see how you use that to, to better yourself in trying to remedy some of the symptoms that occur from, you know, the stress and the angst of, of just, you know, being a person on this planet. We are in some some troubling times, man. I think this pandemic 
kind of expose a lot of the weaknesses and the things that we kept busy and and being around and not being able to go outside for 18 months and then not being able to be around family and loved ones for a long period of time and have it be due to something out of your control is traumatic in and of itself. You know what I'm saying? And so what these kids have to deal with today, like I couldn't imagine fast forward, like rewinding the time back to when I was 16, 17 and something happening when I was in the 10th, 11th, 12th grade and not being able to go outside or go see people for an extended period of time and what that would have done to me without social media, without being able to see that window to the world, right? Because that's kind of what social media is. Sometimes that, you know, the vision you get from that perspective isn't always good, but we have to be mindful of, of others and be mindful of ourselves and be true to ourselves. And, um, you know, seek out help. I, I would rather you tell me what's going on with you to help you than figure out later that you felt like you didn't have anybody to talk to when you did something harmful to yourself. So um, with that said, man, another episode in the can, man. We are here, the BU Podcast. I'll continue if you guys want to keep hearing. So let me know. Please give me as much feedback as you can, positive, negative people that you may want to see or may, or may want to hear from, I mean, and um, just let me know what I can do to improve what I'm doing. I'm only getting started, so I'm still learning on the fly. I'm building the plane as I'm flying. Like I said, for the most part, the the, the feedback that I've been getting has been really, really positive. Um, it's been really, really constructive, and it's been helpful. So with that, BU Podcast, Mike Arrington. Be easy. You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington.